Welcome to ILTV's Israel Daily. I'm Aaron Porras. And coming up in today's newscast, ILTV heads to Judea and Samaria for an exclusive with former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. American Reform Jews question the necessity of Judaism's oldest and most widely practiced tradition. And Israeli antiquities authorities getting drunk on history. Archaeologists in central Israel unveiling an enormous and ancient winery. We begin our show today with special coverage by our very own ILTV team who accompanied former United States Secretary of State Mike Pompeo during his recent visit to Israel. Pompeo receiving a special award from the settlement movement for all of his work and support in the settlements of Judea and Samaria. And joining us now is, for more is our own Asaf Nisan, who was there on the ground for the ceremony. Asaf, it's great to have you back with us. Now, what, what exactly was the reason for this visit? The reason itself was as we said, Pompeo coming to Israel to receive a special award from the settlement movement for helping with their legal status, pretty much making them in a better situation than they were. I mean, not exactly calling them 100% legal in the eyes saying, of the world. saying that they're not illegal per se. Well, pretty much acknowledging the U.S.'s rec rec recognition of the settlements of being legal, so making it optional for them to build. Sure. All right. Well, so, uh, you know, how was the tour and where did you start your day? So the tour itself started off in the ancient city of Shiloh. Pretty much from there, together with the Pompeo family, going, going around learning the history of the place, was very moving, very interesting. And of course, we had a really nice person in the end from Pompeo himself, pretty much calling in Shiloh against the entire decisions of the Biden administration, fighting against them, calling them off, and saying everything pretty much is going to ruin all the hard work they've been doing up to now. And, of, and also calling to support what he calls the Pompeo Doctrine. Interesting. All right, well, uh, we'll, we'll get more, I think, on the Pompeo Doctrine soon. But, you know, uh, who, who was there? Any, any notable figures or interesting, in, interesting members? In the tour itself, it was pretty much the, the Pompeo family, so we didn't see too many well-known figures. But when we moved to the Psagot Winery, pretty much the who's and who's of the Yesha Council, uh, the entire uh, settlement movement, right. government officials from the right, and of course, former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu came to visit and congratulate. Sure. All right, and so, uh, uh, you know, what was the most interesting thing that, that you heard from him throughout the day? Well, it's been quite a few, but I think the most interesting for me was that declaration in Shiloh where he called out the Biden administration as a criminal for literally calling Israel a thief and the fact that they want to still again the lands from, from the Palestinians, despite the fact that in his, uh, in his eyes, and of course in the eyes of Israel, those lands are part of the Israeli, of the Israeli nation. So there's no reason really to call it a Sorry, we're, we're speaking about Area C specifically, specifically. Uh, and, and the settlements that, exactly. are, that are in uh, Israeli-controlled areas. All right, well, without further ado, let's take a brief look at your trip. We're here in Yekev Sagot, in a special visit by former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, receiving an award from the settlements of Judea and Samaria for his ongoing support, together with former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, members of Parliament, and different figures of the right. It is deeply humbling to be here today in this incredibly special place in the world. We have no greater ally than the United States, and in the United States, we have no better allies than Mike Pompeo and some of his friends. Beginning in the ancient city of Shiloh, 
Secretary Pompeo, along with his family, went on a private tour of the site, learning about its importance to the Jewish people. At the end of the tour, after receiving a special souvenir from the visit, Secretary Pompeo gave a short speech calling out the decisions of the Biden administration and asked to strengthen the policy that is known as a Pompeo Doctrine. It makes clear that Israel exists within its present territory with legal title and sovereign legitimacy as a matter of international law. The Biden administration is now preparing to reverse that doctrine and have our country once again suggest that the Jewish state of Israel is an illegal occupier. From there, Secretary Pompeo moved on to the Psygot Winery for a private lunch alongside former U.S. Secretary of Treasury Steven Mnuchin, former U.S. Ambassador David Friedman, and other prominent figures. Afterwards, Secretary Pompeo arrived at the main event joined by former Prime Minister Netanyahu, who came to honor the Secretary for all his hard work and collaboration, and telling the audience what a visionary. When you came out with your declaration, you were affirming something that was known and understood by the leaders of the, I, I would say the enlightened leaders of the world, exactly a century ago. In Versailles, in San Remo, and the other conferences that sought to shape the Middle East after World War I. This is our land. This is our land. It was clear throughout the event that this award means a great deal to the people of Judea and Samaria, as Pompeo was the first U.S. secretary who officially recognized the legal status of the settlers which allowed them to build. Do you remember his declaration that says that the Jewish community here in Judea and Samaria, they are in, under the law, under the international law, and Jewish can build in Eretz Israel in the Jewish land. So for us, the Secretary of State, the former Secretary of State, will be always our big friend, a big support of Israel, and big support of the heart of the Bible land. So, looking at the broad picture, I find this a very positive event from the aspect of Israel, from the aspect of Israel's security. It tells you that more and more people in the U.S. understand that Judea and Samaria are part of the state of Israel, and that Israel needs those areas for its security and for its future. And when it came time for the guest of honor to speak, he told the audience that despite all the scary premonitions that the decision to move the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem will lead to war, ended up with a recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of a Jewish state, and also telling the world a simple truth. It was that the rightful capital of this nation ought to be the place where we have our embassy. I'll never forget the meetings, the meetings that said there will be war. This will create intifada. This creates enormous risk. And yet, President Trump was bold. He was prepared. We did the work. And we made the simple, truthful statement and moved our embassy to the rightful capital of the Jewish homeland. We made the simple statement that Israel is not an occupying force in Judea and Samaria. But throughout the entire event, one question was in everyone's mind. Will we see Secretary Pompeo on his way to the White House in 2024? I can only learn from the past and with my understanding of this behavior of this specific individual that he has plans for the future and we obviously are part of these plans. Asaf Nisan, ILTV. All right, now in continuation with Pompeo's visit, we're once again joined by ILTV reporter Asaf Nisan. 
Asaf, it looks like he had a lot of fun uh, uh, in, in uh, Shiloh and in the Psychot winery with everybody. But I understand that in addition to escorting the Pompeo family in the ceremony, uh, you interviewed him. Uh, how was it? Well, besides the fact that we're talking about one of the most interesting people in this, in this era, I have to say it was really riveting and it was really interesting to hear his personal thoughts on the different subjects and different topics that came throughout the conversation. Pretty much, I would say it was spectacular. Any special, special interests or points of interest that, that you want to share with us or draw our attention to? So two of them that I really, really noticed throughout the interview was one, the fact that he was talking about how the Biden administration, with the fact that they're taking now their, their obligation to reopen the Palestinian mission to the, the Palestinian mission, mission in East Jerusalem mm. as of crime. That's one thing. And of course, also the fact that the Abraham Accords will lead to a, a more powerful, stable area, especially with Iran now being on the verge of a nuclear bomb. All right. Well, uh, it's, it sounds... It sounds like some presidential speaking, uh, uh, maybe, maybe he's hinting Pot at, at Potentially, something. I mean, you know, know. You, you know how it goes with these things. <laughs> exactly. All right, but let, let's actually take a sneak peek here at, at, uh, at your interview. You, you can count on my continued support for a relationship between the United States and Israel. Who knows what role that will be in today? I'm here just as an American citizen coming to, uh, to share my deep and abiding love for this really special place here in Israel. Uh, I'll, I'll stay in this fight. It is really important. It's important for Israel as an evangelical Christian. I, I love this place. Asaf, thank you so much. Thank you. All right. And to see the full exclusive interview with former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, make sure to visit ILTV.tv or download our new ILTV Plus platform on the Apple or Android app stores. In other news, male circumcision or the removal of the foreskin around the penis symbolizing the oldest, most widely practiced, and most basic tenets of the Jewish covenant with God. But a small group of Reformed Jews in the United States are now looking to modernize the covenant with alternatives to the tradition. Here with the analysis, director of the Rabbinical Assembly for the Conservative Movement, Rabbi Andrew Sachs. Rabbi, thank you so much for being with us. Now, let, let's just start off with the basic. What is the meaning behind Jewish male circumcision, or Brit Milah? The Brit Milah was a mitzvah that was given to Abraham Avinu, to Abraham, as a sign of the covenant that every Jewish child should be brought into the covenant, and it's marked by the Brit Milah on the eighth day. Okay, but so the Bruchim group, which is advocating for this, uh, the alternative to Brit Milah, they call it a Brit Shalom, or a, you know, of peace. Uh, they argue that most Jews fail to follow halakha to the letter, so why make exception for brit milah? What, what's different about circumcision uh, and, and keeping Shabbat or keeping kosher habits? Well, really, there's no difference. Each of them is a mitzvah in and of itself, and that people perhaps are uh, less observant of Shabbat or kashrut or brit milah does not mean that there needs to be a compromise in that area. In fact, just the opposite. We need to encourage and strengthen the identity of Jewish people so that Brit Milah will be the way to go. Uh, I also uh, want to point out that in the introduction, you mentioned controversy within the reform movement. Uh, I'm the director of the Rabbinical Assembly here in Israel, which is the Masorti conservative movement, yeah. where we take a halachic-based approach uh, to Judaism, unlike the Reform Movement, which accepts the autonomy of the individual. So, so would you consider an uncircumcised man to be Jewish? I don't think there is any question that somebody born to a Jewish mother 
who is uncircumcised is Jewish. I know nobody who would think otherwise. Mm. And indeed, uh, the rabbis have discussed on uh, in many occasions whether such a person is entitled to fully participate in the Jewish community and in ritual life within the synagogue. So again, then, you know, why, why would you continue to push other than from the halachic standpoint, as you stated, you know, because that's really just tradition-based. Other than tradition, you know, which is for the sake of doing it, why would you advocate for Jews to continue that tradition of brit milah, of, of circumcision? Well, we don't perform brit milah simply because it's a tradition. That one can point out, as people do, that there are alternative liturgy that can be uh, um, aesthetic reasons brought in. There can be medical reasons discussed. But the bottom line is, for us as Jews, there's only one reason to perform a brit milah, and that is because there is a mitzvah, that we are obligated by God, by tradition. It's not simply following a custom, but it is an obligation incumbent upon the father, upon the parent of each Jewish uh, baby that is born. Uh, now, in the United States, it's thought that some 90 percent of men are circumcised. Uh, obviously, most of them are not Jewish, but—and uh, this is because, apart from the Jewish tradition, hospitals uh, often just do it. So physically and med medically speaking, you know, what are the pros and cons of the practice? First, I, I, I think you need to recheck your statistics mm. <clears throat> that through the 1970s um, in the United States, we were talking 70, 80 percent were circumcised. But the latest statistics in the United States would indicate that it's probably closer to 60 percent. Mm. Um, and um, the pros and cons, first, once again, one can discuss the pros medically. Uh, for instance, we know that in areas of uh, where it's difficult to, uh, to, to treat HIV, for instance, that HIV virus uh, can thrive underneath the foreskin where there's a warm and moist environment. And thus, it could be that routine medical circumcision can have a side medical benefit. But none of that is relevant to us as Jews. What is relevant is that there is, again, only one reason we perform the circumcision, and that is that there is a mitzvah. Whether it is beneficial or not beneficial, it is a sign of joining the Jewish people. How would you respond to, and of course, I'm not one of these people, but how would you respond to those who would consider male circumcision to be uh, an, an abusive practice? Well, I don't really need to, to respond because uh, I'm not here to convince anybody that their approach is correct or incorrect. Um, however, today we have means to alleviate uh, and reduce the pain of the infant, for instance, the use of a topical anesthetic so that the uh, pain that the infant experience is, is quite minimal. Rabbi Andrew Sachs, thank you so much. Thank you. Moving on, international social media giant Facebook in hot water this month amidst whistleblower accusations of covering up damning internal reports and consistently putting its profit margins above issues of public health and safety. Israel now looking to right some of these wrongs, though, with a new team of government-appointed experts. Working under the communications minister, Yoaz Hendel, the Israeli team is expected to compel Facebook to reveal its censorship policies, as well as its algorithms. And most importantly, Israel may seek to hold Facebook legally liable for the content on its platform. So what does this mean for Facebook and for Israel? Legal counsel with the Israeli digital rights movement, Jonathan Klinger, joining me to discuss. 
Now, we know uh, that there will be a few months in which Facebook and the task force discuss the plans, but let's assume that everything mentioned above passes. How will this affect Facebook? So first, I have to say, knowing at least one of the members of the committee, I think that the, the word liability towards Facebook would be too broad. I don't think that anyone would attempt to hold Facebook legally liable for speech on its platform. What will happen is that Facebook would be more transparent towards us on the way that they treat complaints and takedowns, and they should be more transparent to the citizens on what is manipulated in order to show on your newsfeed. Because towards the government, Facebook is already totally transparent. The Israeli government has a unique side channel with Facebook to remove content whenever it wishes. And around 85% of the takedown requests are honored almost immediately. What we need to know is that we're certain that no foreign interference in our future elections would occur and that no manipulation of our most intimate thoughts would happen through the newsfeed, like anti-vaxxers using the platform to spread misinformation. So saying this, we need to also acknowledge that Facebook is big, way too big, and it's almost like a government entity, if not even bigger. So when we want to regulate, we need to understand that we're dealing here with something that might be bigger than Israel itself, and that we have to use diplomacy in order to get the right result. That means more democracy in Israel and not more uh, government observation and government control over Facebook. Okay, but ostensibly, the task force's decisions will likely also affect Twitter, TikTok, and, and other social media channels. Would this kind of legislation be effective in truly addressing issues of hate speech, misinformation, libel, etc.? You know, Facebook already has a fact-check function, for example, that has come under fire for a number of reasons. Who will be in charge of determining whether the content is true or false or libelous or satire, etc.? So, first of all, uh, I'm against, and I hope that this won't uh, fall into the conclusions, any form of censorship or liability on platforms. This means that I think that if someone wrote hate speech or libel or invaded someone else's privacy through a social network, then you should address him and not the social network. Th this is so important because if we would hold Facebook liable to any post publish on, published on it, it would mean that there will be no free speech. It would mean that anyone who wants to post something would have to go through pre-checking and would be censored uh, beforehand. This is a problem and this is something we don't want to do. Now, if we want to help people who are in trouble and help them have legal um, help, we need to make sure that there's more, tra more transparency on the process, but that there's no liability on Facebook. The only reason that Facebook became so big and is so problematic is because it deals with more engagement. It wants you to engage more. So what, what happens is that it pulls up stickier posts, things that are um, controversial. And we need to make sure that this doesn't happen and not 
that Facebook would be held liable to any post published on it. All right, Jonathan Klinger, thank you so much. Thank you. All right, for this next story, I want to talk to you about wine. Israeli archaeologists now unveiling a massive 1,500-year-old production complex that would make even Dionysus blush. Welcome to Yavne, a central Israeli city soon set for expansion and home to winemaking history. The Israel Antiquities Authority now revealing two years of excavations in Tel Yavne, and what they found is astounding, a 1,500-year-old Byzantine-era wine production site believed to be the largest in the world at that time. I'm sitting at the moment in the midst of a large wine press on the treading floor. This is just one of five large wine presses at this site. And this gives an idea of the large quantity of wine that was produced here. We're talking about two million liters annually from this one site. Five massive and well-preserved wine presses, each measuring about 225 square meters, in addition to huge collection and fermentation vats discovered at the site. And that's just a small taste of what's been found. In fact, the production was so massive that it was likely known throughout much of the Byzantine world via the ports of Gaza and Ashkelon, for which the wine is named. And Gaza wine was a trademark wine that was from the whole of this area of the southern part of the coastal plain. We have to realize that this was a prestige wine. It was a light white wine and it was taken to many, many countries around the Mediterranean. We're talking Egypt, we're talking Turkey, we're talking Greece, maybe to southern Italy as well. So this was a wine that was widely distributed around the Mediterranean. Additionally, four warehouses for aging and marketing the wine and kilns for firing the clay amphora in which the wine was stored were among the artifacts recovered, proving once again just how professional and industrial the complex really was. In the excavation here in Yavne, the main find are jars. And this jar is the most typical jar that we found at the site, a jar which is known as a Gaza jar or an Ashkelon jar, which are very, very similar. The shape which you could even sort of compare with a cola bottle today was something which was completely known to anybody who saw them. And these were typical jars which were used for wine that came from the area of the southern coastal plain in Israel. And of course, we have many other finds. These jars over here are called Palestinian baggy jars, and they are the main kind of jars which were found all over the area of Israel right through the Byzantine period. We have these oil lamps which are dated to the same period as these jars. And we have also oil lamps which come from a later period, from the early Islamic period. These are dolls, children's toys, which were found also at the site. Now as for the uses of the Yavne product line, don't think that the drink was just for partying adults alone. Children were just as likely at the time to imbibe this divine nectar. Well, first of all, people enjoy drinking wine. But beyond that, this was a major source of nutrition. And this was a safe drink because the water was often co contaminated, so they could drink wine safely, and then they could also, uh, of course, take it in as part of their daily diet. In fact, when not substituted for water altogether, wine was also often used as a concentrate to improve water's taste. And this practice long predates these recent finds, too. Excavations in Tel Yavne also revealing even older wine presses from the Persian period about 2,300 years ago proving a continuum of existence in the wine industry in the area for many centuries. All right, now let's take a look at the weather forecast with Hannah Rifkin. Now we got clouds forming tomorrow in the northern and central regions and scattered showers in the south. Lows tonight ranging between 17 to 26 degrees Celsius and highs expecting to range between 28 to 37 degrees Celsius. And now we head back to the studio with Aaron. And now before we go, let's see what's going viral here in Israel. Uh, 
Uh, this is probably the best new trend in Israel. Uh, making grilled cheese croissants. Such a brilliant idea. Looks amazing. All right, that is it for today's news. Today's exchange rate is 3.23 shekels to the American dollar and 2.59 shekels to the Canadian dollar. And finally, for the latest updates and news from ILTV, please like ILTV on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel as well as to our newsletter at ILTV.tv. I'm Aaron Porras. Be well. Thank you so much for watching.